most avid reader by Bibi Berkey. The Women in the Woods, Chapter 9 The leader of the Hesiots, the woman now called Elizabeth, might not have spoken any English, but she could make herself understood. What's more, her adolescent daughter, Maria, was learning the language fast and often acted as an interpreter. Elizabeth was 28, it transpired, and had three children, all girls, Maria being the eldest. She was a humorous woman, often bringing out smiles in her tribeswomen, laughing frequently at who knew what. Nathan loved her. He wasn't at all sure whether she loved him back. For the first time in his recent life, he sensed something like contentment and revelled in his role as protector. The Hesiot's charming ignorance called for a new level of usefulness in him. The agreement with the Hadleys had been that the women could live in the farm cottages, but the erstwhile occupants had to be removed forcibly to make space for them. In return, the women would have to work the land and apply themselves to any task they were set. As it happened, they were strong enough to tackle all the agricultural labour that their predecessors had been paid to do. If they felt hard done by, then they showed no inkling of it. If Nathan had been alone when he found the child's body in Fair Spinney that day, then who knew what course of action he might have taken? He might well have shut his eyes to the discovery, left the child rest there undisturbed. These women were penniless and ignorant of local practices. If a child died of natural causes, as this poor infant probably had, then they knew no better than to choose a grave of their own making, given their rather idolatrous relationship with trees. The foot of a beach was probably the most fitting site for this wretched little creature. But Nathan had not been alone when the body was found, and there was simply no way that the discovery could be covered up. He had no choice but to report the news to his master, John Hadley, who, in turn, spoke to his physician who happened to be visiting that day, and the physician brought it up that very afternoon with the magistrate. The body was exhumed, if you could call it an exhumation, given how shallow the grave was, and inspected, and no obvious cause of death found, which opened the way to a host of sinister interpretations. The women were oblivious to the gossip bubbling around them, if Elizabeth was wounded by the insistent questions the Hadley estate farm manager was daily throwing at her via her daughter, why would she care about his odd obsession? She had other thoughts and feelings. Primarily, the private jubilation of being pregnant once more. I was in my sitting room with the dogs, reading the paper, the radio on, the washing machine whirring in the kitchen, when a single heavy-handed knock arrived on my front door. 
I pushed away the dogs and switched off the radio and just listened. Nothing more. Why should I be unnerved by a knock, for goodness sake? I'm not the nervous kind, but it made the hairs stand up on the back of my neck. I was wearing a very strange assemblage of clothing, lounging around stuff, tracksuit bottoms, socks, a jumper, hair tied up. I went and had a quick look out of the little window at the front. I could have died on the spot. It was him, the surly man on the train, the conservationist whose cover I'd supposedly blown. What did he want? And yet I knew why my heart was beating. I was furious at myself for looking so bedraggled, for the house being such a mess, papers everywhere, for not having showered yet, for all sorts of petty things. I opened the door and he came striding in. And this is another bloody annoying thing, he said. He was almost ranting, was continuing an argument he'd had with me in his head ever since we parted at the station. How dare you call the police? How did you have the temerity to think you were in the right and we were the villains? Didn't you stop to think? But I noticed that his focus on me was changing and he was seeing me for the first time. Me, properly, not the vilified idea of me. He was looking at a child, vulnerable, her hair in a ponytail, her clothes hanging off her. I was a laughable sight. He softened there and then. My heart was pounding. He was in a state of confusion, and so was I. That's why he was tense, not because of me. I was lost for words. The dogs were cowed and quivering by my feet. All I could manage was, Do you want a cup of tea, and we'll sort this out? Is there anything I can do? I'm sorry. And I trailed off, casting my eyes apologetically around the room. You've bloody done enough, he said. He strode over to the sofa and sat down on it. I went and stood before him, helpless, my hands hanging limply by my side, at which he stood up again. I thought I saw tears in his eyes. He got hold of me and kissed me, and I kissed him back, and we were not in our right minds. I'm shivering at the memory of that day. So many moments are forgotten by us as instantly as they happen. But there are times, like this one, that sit behind our vision every day, that are the backgrounds to the rest of our pallid lives. I have loved before, and I've been sexually desperate before, but never the two, so instantly, so terminally. We were together all day, by which I mean joined together. I don't think we left the bed. At one point I got up to close the curtains, but leaving him for even that length of time felt criminally negligent. And all the while, you know, I could swear there were tears in his eyes. That's guilt for you. What did I feel? Alive, I suppose. Monstrous with power. I wanted to consume him, overpower him. I remember wanting to hurt him, too, to scratch him, to draw blood so that I could see that side of him, too. It's all rather bizarre, human desire, isn't it? It's never enough. It has a volition of its own, and it's a struggle, a fight for something. When sex is no longer a fight, it can't be called desire. It's something else, 
but not desire. When he left, he took with him my equanimity. I needed him back to balance me. I was out of kilter because what I needed was him, and he wasn't really, officially, there. But he came back, and this time we spoke even less. We went to the bedroom and remained there all day and half the night. I haven't described to you the agony of the time when he wasn't there, because I can't. When he wasn't there, my body was reeling with a rancid seasickness. Suddenly I felt so alone, so unnatural. I didn't leave my home for days after that first visit. I remember washing myself and sitting in the bath in silence, my legs pulled up to my breasts, spasms and vibrations racking my body at intervals. I was ill with being without him. When he came back, I was a delirious blank. I was real and breathing and alive. And then he left again, with no promise of ever returning, and I entered the cold black vault of the waiting lover. What an awful, awful role to play. The one who waits. But then, I don't like waiting on anyone. I like to take things into my own hands. Monica by Georgina Sutton. The male narrator was Mark Lingwood. Your Most Avid Reader was written by Bibi Berkey with sound editing by Mark Lingwood. It was made by Tempest Productions and brought to you with the kind support of Rattlesnake Books, an established seller of books, maps, ephemera, art and curiosities. Rattlesnake Books can be found on Instagram, Etsy, Abe Books and Biblio. Thank you.